It was at the eight o'clock service every Sunday at my previous church on the Monterey Peninsula in California. Um, always a few minutes after the service began, we heard the sound of a diesel engine. So uh, you might find this unusual, but our church there actually had a, a parking lot. <laughs> and so uh, you could hear the cars as they came, but most cars you didn't hear, but there was this one car always arriving a few minutes late, a flatbed diesel truck driven by a 90-year-old woman named Nancy Costello. And Nancy would walk in and was embraced by everybody every morning when she came. She was well-known, always wearing a blue work shirt and blue pants. And Nancy in Monterey was about as Monterey as you could possibly be. Her family arrived in California when they came for the gold rush. Her mom worked in the canneries during the Depression. And Nancy not only knew John Steinbeck, but she cooked him enchiladas. And if you're a Steinbeck aficionado in any way, it, it might mean something to you that her husband, Jimmy, who was a reporter for the Monterey Herald, was part of that inner circle of guys who got together at Ed Ricketts' lab on Cannery Row regularly. Nancy was an opinionated woman. She had opinions of all three of Steinbeck's wives, but she loved his dog, Charlie. But Nancy actually wouldn't talk about these things readily. I, as a Steinbeck fan, got to pull that out of her. Um, but Nancy wasn't really interested in the past. She was interested in what she was about today, what she was doing. She had a story. It was about 40 years before I met her, when she was in her late 40s, early 50s, when she suddenly had a realization of how people living nearby her did not have enough to eat. And she started finding ways that she could maybe do something about that. She had a station wagon, and she started a practice of filling her car with donated food and other items like clothing and bringing them to people who were in need. And it was not lost on her the irony. Many of the people who were hungry, they were in Salinas and the Salinas Valley, just over the hill from the Monterey area. These are the people who literally pick the food that people around this country are going to eat. And they didn't have enough to eat themselves for their families and their children. And so this practice of Nancy's evolved over time, and by the time I met her, she was already in her 90s, as I mentioned, and she was picking food up six days a week with that big diesel truck, with teams of volunteers that were on a rota that would show up and help her load. She was the drill sergeant. She told everyone what to do, but others were, were there to help and to serve alongside her. And she picked food up places like, uh, like Safeway, like Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's actually started to record. They scanned the barcode of all the food they were donated, donating, and one year it, they realized it's over a million dollars every year just for that one store it was being donated. Food that would have gone into landfill, going into people's bellies. Food they were going to throw out just because it wasn't perfect anymore, but it was perfectly nutritious. But don't try to give Nancy donuts. She would turn those away. That's not going to help anybody. So six days a week, she would load the truck with others, 
And then she would personally drive the truck out. Sometimes it was a 100-mile round trip um, you know, for a day. And she'd be there for the distribution. And then on that seventh day, on Sunday, she'd be at church. Nancy had a well-defined sense of justice. And she also had a deep heart for mercy and for caring. And when you bring those two together, miracles can happen. Nancy uh, was often referred to as a saint, and uh, that got around to her, and she hated it, which I think kind of proves that she probably was. Well, the poor disciples that we hear about this morning, when they encounter Jesus and ask him their question, they do not look good. These two brothers, James and John, remember they both eventually would go on to great renown, but at this moment... They were just followers of Jesus and nothing more. They were former fishermen who used to fish with their father Zebedee, and now they were fishing with a different fisherman, but fishing for people. And it, it sounds unusual the way they ask their question. They say, will you give us whatever we ask of you? I mean, how would you react if somebody comes to you and say, I have a question for you. Will you give me whatever I'm about to ask? Most of us would be inclined to say, don't ask that question. But Jesus invites the question, and then it actually gets even worse. When they ask what they ask, they didn't ask, "Will, will you give us our wish that we can make sure that all people are fed or that lives are healed? They don't say that at all. They say, our wish is that one of us sit on your right hand side and the other at your left hand side in glory. And of course, Jesus answers them, offering them something else. He offers them sacrifice. I think it's great how the Gospels give us the disciples unvarnished, embarrassing even though they may appear. But remember the whole story. These two disciples will drink the cup in their lives. They will be baptized with the baptism in the way of Jesus, his self-emptying love, and his sacrifice. Although they don't look good in the moment, it's perhaps even more uncomfortable for us when we recognize us in their question. But remember, there is hope. There is hope for them, and there is hope for us. The thing is, the hope is not about going up. The hope is in learning to go downward. We need new narratives. I love the way that our presiding bishop uh, talks about the way that Jesus is. He turns the world upside down, and then we discover that the world has been made right side up. And he invites us to be a part of that. To give is to receive, and the least are the greatest. It is better to serve than to be served. If you look around in Washington, D.C., actually, you can see both narratives being embodied at the same time. Both narratives. This is one of the most stratified cities that you could ever find, where status plays a huge role. But within the life of Washington, the people that you meet all around here, including people that you meet all around St. John's, are truly animated by a spirit of service. 
People move here from all over the place so that they can have the chance to serve, to make a difference, to do things that are meaningful with their lives. I think of the old days in Washington, at least the way I imagined them, where it was more common for folks to see that quality in one another, even during those times when people were on opposite sides of issues, that people were opponents as opposed to enemies. But today, status and gamesmanship are on the rise, and more and more, there is fear of one another, not just here, but around the country. Reclaiming a heart of service could save us from this moment. We need to flip things around. But what stops us from doing that? I believe it's fear. Many wise people have pointed out that the opposite of love is not actually hate. The opposite of love is fear. And fear makes us irrational people. When we are under a state of fear, we are our lesser selves, less able to see, less able to hear, less able to love, less able to forgive, less able to be generous, and less able to receive. It's the difference between open hands and closed hands. Fear that if we give, we'll have less than we need. Fear that if we divest from what is safe and familiar, we will become vulnerable. Fear that if we do not make ourselves important, nobody else will. It is fear that limits us from really addressing systemic racism. And it is fear that limits us from really addressing poverty. And those two are related. The truth of the matter is that our fears are misplaced. If we don't give, we'll have no room in our hearts to receive. If we don't divest from safety and the known, we'll never experience anything new. If we don't give up our need for status, we'll never really amount to anything meaningful. How do we learn to live in love like Jesus? How do we learn to live like Nancy lived? I think she was a saint, but the miracles that followed her came from simply taking one good step and then taking the next and then taking the next. Something that any of us could do. We could walk that way too, living a life in Jesus' image. Not here to be served, but here to serve. Amen.